You know, um, as we get started tonight, if there's one thing that is a great passion <laughs> inside of me, it is a great passion inside of me that when the children of God speak about their father, that they are doing so in a way that represents him accurately. Because not everybody speaks about God in a way that is truly reflective of his character. They, they mean well a lot of times. A lot of times it's not done out of a, a, a disrespect, but many times done out of a lack of knowledge and a lack of being able to properly interpret the Scripture and, and, and what, the, what the Word of God says about them. Because, you know, people can say, well, the Bible says it because such and such a verse says this. But when you look at the whole body of what the Scripture says and you put it all together and you connect the dots, the Bible really does not say what they say it says. I mean, after all, we know that, you know, the Bible says that Judas went and hung himself, and the Bible also says, go and do likewise, but, but those are dots that you should not be connecting. Because that does not represent the, the totality of what the Scripture teaches. The Scriptures do not promote murder of others or murder of yourself either. So I, I, I say that just as a little background, because it's very important for us to be in a position where we are understanding the Scriptures properly, and actually to be in the best position, not just to, to speak of him, our father, in the right way, and, and to represent him accurately, but this will help your Bible reading too. Because when you read the Bible, you'll be able to go ahead and see the Bible through, through its own glasses. And what I mean by that is the best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. The best way to understand the Bible is to let the Bible connect the dots for you and, and, and to put it all together rather than an isolated verse here and there. And so this is going to be good for your spiritual walk. And uh, y'all want to know what we're going to talk about? Yes. This is going to be my title. Best one I could think of. Don't talk about my daddy that way. <laughs> so that is our title. So by the time we're done, y'all going to have your hand on your hip, get your, get your finger wagging just like that. Say, don't you be talking about my daddy that way. But, but what I believe that we're going to be able to accomplish is to be able to have a, a solid scriptural basis for what God is like, what God is not like, the kind of stuff God does, the kind of stuff God does not do, and you know your enemy pretty well too. Praise God. That, that's going to be our goal over tonight and over the next few weeks. And um, uh, so I, I say this with all sincerity that uh, I believe that this is very significant uh, for, for every believer to, to be established in it. And if you think you're established in it already, pour a little concrete on it. Because uh, th this is something that is very, very key, very foundational. And we are going to teach tonight. I like to preach. I th thank God for, uh, you know, for, for, for the giftings that he gives different people. But uh, I know that tonight is teaching night. Line upon line upon line upon line. Connect the dots. Are you ready? 
All right. So, first of all, as we're going to talk about this subject, don't talk about my daddy that way. We're going to go ahead and look at some of the things that are right there in the Bible that, that, that have caused misunderstanding about the character of God and have caused people to get into the habit of talking about him certain ways. All right? So we're going to go ahead and go and, and uh, first of all, to, to the book of Job. In chapter 42, we'll get started there. And we're going to look at some of the things that people said about God or even things that, that, that uh, are either proclaimed about God or that God is proclaiming that, that would give you an impression. However, we got to put everything together to make sure that the impression is the right impression. And I believe the Lord is going to help us to do that tonight. Job 42, 11, the scripture says, and talking about Job, Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now one thing that's interesting is that right here in the same chapter it says that the Lord turned the captivity of Job. But then you read this at its face value, and you would think that the Lord was responsible for the captivity of Job. So you would say, well, the Lord got him into captivity and got him out. The Lord got him into adversity and then got him out. But it's interesting um, that that, that one thing that we're going to see is that uh, uh, an Old Testament mindset that was very prevalent was that and, and, and really the, the, uh, the, 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 way, the way the people spoke and, and uh, the, the lingo they used uh, actually had God as being both the source of good and bad. How many of you ever picked that up when you read that in the Old Testament? So when you read in the Old Testament, you say, well, it looks like God's doing the good stuff and God's doing the bad stuff, which makes your mind go kind of tilt. But I believe we're going to go ahead and have some, some renewed minds tonight and less tilted minds. Amen. Uh, but that, that word adversity, it's the, the Hebrew word ra, R-A, ra, easy to remember. But, but um, I, I bring that up because this uh, word here for adversity in the King James Bible is actually translated as evil. So in that translation, the King James, uh, it says that, that these people comforted Job for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Whether it's evil, adversity, whatever you want to call it, don't sound good, does it? All right. Well, hold on. It ain't over yet. We, it's going to get better. So let's go to Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And you think, oh, Lord. (laughs) Really? You're doing all that? You're making peace and creating calamity? And the King James of that says, I make peace and create evil. Now, how's that? Oh, yeah. Lord have mercy. Here we go. Let's go into one more. Amos 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will, the, will not the people be afraid? 
if there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? So I wanted to go ahead and just shock our systems with this kind of language in these first three verses that we read tonight. And, and according to these verses, looking at them face value, without digging, you say, all right, God was responsible for all the adversity that went to Job's house. Uh, God said, I'm making peace and creating calamity. And if there's calamity in the city, who else are you going to go ahead and tag for doing that? Of course it would have been the Lord. That's basically the wording of what Amos said in chapter 3, verse 6. So what's up with that? Are you ready? Well, first of all, we need to realize this, that if God does evil, it would make sense that he would encourage his followers to do the same. But he doesn't. Oh, yeah. The, the rusty gears are cranking. Yep. Even those real rusty ones are going here tonight. Praise the Lord. If God does evil... It would make sense that he would encourage his followers to do the same, but he does not. So stay with me. Now right there in that same book of Amos, we were in Amos 3, and I said, well, if there's calamity in the city, and the King James of that, if there's evil in the city, well, of course it would have been the Lord who did it. But what about Amos 5? Amos chapter 5, 14 and 15 says this, seek good and not evil. That's the same Hebrew word, Ra. Here we go again. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Look at the next verse. Hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Oh, it's starting to feel better now. All right. So, so here we see... Uh, places where it, it seems to be clearly articulated in the Bible that God is involved with uh, either causing evil or, or, or bringing evil on the scene. And yet God is still telling us, his people, to seek good and not evil and to love good and to hate evil. Interesting. What else does God say to us? Psalm 34, 14, he says, depart from evil and do good. Psalm 34, 16, two verses later, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Proverbs 3, verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So here God's saying that he hates the evil way. But based on what we read in the beginning, you think, well, it looked like God himself was involved in the evil way. But now here it's saying that he hates the evil way. Psalm 121, verse 7. The Lord will preserve you from all evil. Well, how's he going to preserve you from all evil if he's involved in doing some himself? Now, according to the Bible, what is the opposite of evil? 
Yeah, it's not a trick question. <laughs> it's good. So Genesis 2.9 talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can put that verse up there just for reference. But you see, right at the end there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the, the, that word good is the word tov. So you got ra for bad or evil, and then tov for good. Now, so you got the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and of course, uh, realizing which one are opposites. We, we just read over in Amos 5 a few minutes ago, it, it, where it said, seek God, not evil. I mean, seek good, not evil. Hate the evil and love the good. Remember that? So therefore, it is not a, a difficult thing to figure out that, that with, with, with these scriptural premises here, that the opposite of evil would be good. Now, what does it say about God being good? Does the Bible say that God is good? Well, let's look. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. Psalm 73 and verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures all generations. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There's about to be an echo in here. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There's about to be another echo in here. Psalm 118, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And Psalm 118, verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Woo! And then, a very interesting thing. Prophetic scripture about Jesus coming over in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, 14 and 15. Let's take a look at it. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means what? God with us. Look at verse 15. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, here's the thing. Regarding God the Son, Jesus, God manifested in the flesh, the Son of the living God, the one who is just as much God as the Father is God, and just as much God as the Holy Spirit is God the second person of the Trinity. It says about him that he would uh, know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, how do you reconcile that with the verses that we read in the beginning that talk about God being involved in evil activity? What about all this Old Testament language about 
God striking, smiling, afflicting, killing, and destroying and sending evil to people. How many of you have ever wondered about that personally? You can raise your hand because I know I can't be the only one. And if you had never wondered about it, I know you never read the Old Testament yet. <laughs> well, so it appears uh, in Old Testament language that God is actually taking responsibility for or allows himself to be identified as the cause of things which he really only permitted. And I'm going to show that to you in just a minute. Let me say that again. It appears in Old Testament language that God takes responsibility for or allows himself to be identified as the cause of things which he only permitted. And uh, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a look at that. Uh, and, and that idea of, well, did God do it or did God allow it to take place? And, and this here is going to be very helpful to you because you're going to be able to see side by side instances of the, the same, uh, a reference to the same event. And in one place, it's going to look by the obvious reading that it was God who did it. But then you look at another reading of it right there in the Old Testament and you get a little further light that it wasn't really God who actually did it. Now you're going to see what I mean. So you're going to see here that there's times in Scripture where it says that the Lord did something where the Lord was not the actual committer of the act. He was the permitter of the act, but he wasn't the actual one who was holding the gun, shall we say. Are you ready? So check this out. Side by side, these are going to be very enlightening to you. Now this is about the instance of David numbering the people of Israel which was something that, that, that should not have been done. And, and the Lord uh, uh, had uh, given instruction regarding that. But in 2 Samuel 24.1, I want you to read this. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, based on what you see there, who's it looked like? was the one who moved David. The Lord. It's hard from that verse to come up with any other conclusion except it was the Lord who did it, right? So are you ready? You're going to see the, the same verse, but as it is read in Second Chronicles, I mean, I'm sorry, First Chronicles 21. Let's go. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Wow, did you see that? So in one verse, it looks very clear and obvious that it was the Lord who did it. But now, you get a little more clarity. Well, it wasn't the Lord after all. It was old what's-his-name. And, 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 and we're going to go ahead and see more of this, but I want you to notice something here, that, that God... Uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, especially you see this language, uh, where, where, where it says that he did something where actually he permitted it to be done, but he was not the actual committer of the act. Are you seeing that? And it, this is quite obvious because you read the first verse, it's like, well, I can't come up with any other conclusion except it was the Lord. And now you read this one, hey, wait a minute, it says Satan did it. 
Let's keep going a little bit further. Uh, this here is an instance regarding um, the, uh, uh, the death of Saul, the, the first king of Israel. First Chronicles, we're, we're uh, in chapter 21, we're now going to be in chapter 10. First Chronicles 10, 13 to 14. It says, so Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So you read that and you say, well, God killed Saul. No other conclusion to come to. And yet right there in the same chapter, Verse 3 through 6, it actually gives you the breakdown of what happened with the death of Saul. And that says this, the battle, uh, verse 3 of the same chapter, 1 Chronicles 10. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. Mm. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died and all his house died together. So it's interesting right there in the same chapter, you, you look and say, well, God killed Saul. But then you look at how it actually happened and you see that Saul fell on his own sword. Well, how did you reconcile something like that? Well, it's very, very simple that God can go ahead and allow something to take place without him being the actual one, like I said, who pulled the trigger. You see that? Interesting. Let's check another one out. And now this, we're going to look at one of those verses that we read in the beginning. That very first verse we read about Job, and and this is going to be enlightening to us as well. So this is Job 42, 11 again, the very verse we read in the beginning, then all his brothers and all his sisters, all Job's brothers and sisters, and, and uh, all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. So we should be able to go ahead and look back in the beginning of the book to see the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Isn't that right? But when you go back to the beginning of the verse, uh, uh, the the beginning of the book of Job, you see a statement like this. Job chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, I thought chapter 42 said the Lord did it. But then you go back to Job chapter 2, and it says Satan did it. And if you read Job chapter 1, especially between verse 6 and 19, you see once again more activity of old what's-his-name. Now, this is very important to understand because, you see, if uh, if, if the, the scripture is reading that God did something that based on what the Bible itself says about his character does not, 
jive. Well, that does not jive with the character of God. I got to be missing something. I got to be not making a connection somewhere. Very often, the connection missing is this, that God permitted something to take place, but he was not the actual doer of the action. And this verse that I'm about to read will illustrate that probably better than any other verse in the Old Testament that I know, because you see both sides of it right there in the same verse. You see the side of it that looks like it's saying God did it, and then you see the other side of it that that was talking about God allowing the destroyer to do something. Are you ready for this? This is going to help you. Exodus 12, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. Well, if you stop right there, who's going to go ahead and pass through to strike the Egyptians? Well, of course it's going to be the Lord. That's what it says. So let's keep reading. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Whoa, Light bulbs, boom. You see, because it starts off looking like, well, the Lord's going to go ahead and do this. But then it clarifies that, that the way the Lord would do something is whether he allowed the destroyer to do it. So you see, the Lord did allow the destroyer into the houses of the Egyptians where there was not blood on the doorpost. But the Lord did not allow that destroyer to go into the houses where there was blood on the doorpost. Are you seeing this tonight? Hallelujah. And this is so very important to get. Because this has to do with the, the very character of God and many people who, who, who love God. Here's the thing. Think about this for a minute. One reason why Job is so special is that Job thought that God was the source of all this bad stuff that was happening to him. Of course, when you read the book, you really get to see what happened behind the scenes. But Job really thought that God was the source of all the good and all the bad. And he still loved him and was faithful to him. Even though he had a misconception of what his character was really like. He thought that the Lord was doing that all, but you could read the book and clearly see that behind the scenes, that Satan was doing it. But think about this. Job did better thinking that God was both good and bad than most of us do knowing that God is good. I think we need to catch up with our brother here. Think about his commitment. He's so committed to God, he uttered these words, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he actually thought that the Lord was the one that was trying to slay him. Was not, you know, obviously he wrote the book at some point in time, so so by by revelation he had to have learned and known what was happening behind the scenes because it was written about. But at the time it was happening, he didn't know what was happening behind the scenes. And think about what a tremendous trust in God that he had, that thinking that, that the, the, the good and the bad was coming out the same faucet. That the good and bad was all coming from the same source. And yet he was still committed. Well, how committed should we be knowing that God is good and good all the time? Come on, hallelujah. 
Now, I lay this foundation, which is very, very important, because now when we read the scripture, and, and, and we, we see things like what we read in the beginning, we read, well, God's not out doing evil. God can't be out doing evil. Because God hates evil. He's not going to be doing something that he hates. So therefore, we understand that God is allowing evil to be done. But he's not the one who's actually committing evil, committing evil acts, doing evil to people. And so that's very, very important distinction to make. The, the fact that we see here through these examples that we just read here that, that it is possible for, for you to look at the same uh, uh, example of something that took place in the Old Testament. One place gives you the impression that God did it. The other one will let you know that Satan did it. Or in the other, the, the, the case with Saul, it was Saul who did it. Saul killed himself. And yet, you know, as we read there, it said that the Lord did it. So I, I, I pray that this can be helpful to you in understanding and being able to interpret the Bible that when it says that the Lord did something and it say, well, that don't seem to match the character of God, then that's a good connection to make right there. Well, if it doesn't match the character of God, there's got to be a, a dot to connect there. And the, the connection is that God is, is often permitting things that he'd rather not permit. I mean, after all, how far do you go back with that? You know, uh, uh, people often say, well, well, the Lord can fix that, so why doesn't he just fix it? How many of you have ever heard anything like that before? But you see, the, where to ask that question is not about your Uncle Tony. Where to ask that question is to go back to the very beginning and say, why didn't the Lord stop the mess that was happening in the Garden of Eden? Mm-hmm. Because if he stopped that mess, he wouldn't have to be messing with our mess. You know what I'm saying? If he stopped the root, he'd stop all the nasty fruit that would have happened afterwards. So I want to go ahead and look at some of the progression of things and understand how did things get from how it was back then to how it is now. Now, let's go over to Mark 12. Is there anybody who's seeing some things tonight? And here's... Here's the thing, and I'll, I'll get into this more next week, but don't forget that if you really want to know what the Father's like, who should you look at? If you want to know the Father's like, you should look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, and with an unrenewed mind, without proper understanding of the scripture, you think, well, who was that mean guy back in the Old Testament? <laughs> who was that mean guy? Because I look at Jesus 
And I don't see that. But you see, that lets you know that our perception of the quote-unquote God of the Old Testament is skewed. Because Jesus said, you want to see what the Father's like? Look at me. And we're going to check that out in more detail, but we'll save that for next week. I mean, two weeks from now. But right now, I want to go ahead and plant this thought on you. That when God made the earth, he turned over the keys. How many of you ever turned over the keys to somebody? <laughs> you think about the first time that you let your new teenage driver drive the car. Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah. Or, or you know, some family member that wanted a house sit for you. And you're thinking, oh, boy, what's going to be going on in my house this week that I'm gone? I need to set up cameras or something. <laughs> I don't know if I dare turn the keys over. But I want you to know that God made the earth and God turned over the keys. And this is going to be another big help in us understanding scripture. And understanding the character of God overall. Because, you know, while we're thinking, well, why don't he just step in and stop it? He gave the keys to somebody. So check this out. Mark 12. This is the parable of Jesus. Verse 1 says, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. Again, he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved. He also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. It's interesting here that you can see that those servants that came were prophets and messengers from God who came to give warnings, to speak to the people. And they weren't listened to. They were cast out. They were stoned. They were not listened to and not regarded. And then you can also see God sent his own son, and they didn't listen to him either. But how did this thing all get started? It got started with a lease. You see that right back in the beginning? Then he began to speak with them in parables. This is verse 1. And a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it. You know, uh, the common term today, he farmed it out. How many of you ever heard that before? So here's the thing. God uh, made the earth, but he leased it. He turned over the keys. This is how he did it. 
right there in Genesis chapter 1, start with verse 26. The scripture says, then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Someone say dominion. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have what? Dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, This here is also echoed in the Psalms. Psalm 8. Are you ready? Psalm 8. And we're going to go ahead and see the same theme echoed here. What is man? Verse 4. Psalm 8. That you are mindful of him. And the son of man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. Of course, the Hebrew language, the word for angels there is Elohim. So literally, you've made him a little lower than God. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have what? Dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. I think it's real clear from reading those two portions of Scripture that when God created this place, God gave that man he created the keys. And said, here you go. I made it for you. And this is yours. Have dominion over it. Go ahead and run it. Don't run it into the ground, but run it. Unfortunately, they did the latter. Now, what happened? Of course, without going to this portion of Scripture, but, but, but we can talk about it, is that this, this man God made, who was given the keys, given dominion over all this beautiful stuff that God created, and said, all you got to do is stay away from one tree. You can eat all the fruit in the garden, anything you want, it's all yours. There's just one thing you need to stay away from. That's the one called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve one day got to talking with a serpent in that very tree. And uh, of course that conversation didn't go bad and and, and you could already see from the, the start that, that and it's still the way Satan works today, that he'll try to take the word and twist it. And uh, he tried to do that with Eve very clearly. You know, imagine this. He was telling Eve, well, you know what? But if you eat this tree, you'll be like God. Wait a minute. Look in the mirror. You've already been created in his image and his likeness. So, I mean, he's trying to sell you something you already got. And of course, what he's selling you, (laughs) we've been living with the results of that for 6,000 years of human history. You know what I mean? 
So, so, so think about this, that, that in that process, and, and in, in the fact that mankind, by that act of disobedience, bowed their knee to the serpent, you know who ended up with that dominion and those keys? Man didn't have it anymore. You know who got it? The old serpent got it. Now let's take a look at this, and this is the, the wording that uh, was used in the, the, the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4. And this is what Satan said to him. This is what Satan tempted him with. Luke 4, verse 5. Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. So think about this. This has been delivered to me, he said. Well, who on earth delivered it to him? Adam did. You know, one of the saddest verses in the Bible for men, and I thank God I'm a man, I love being a man, but I got to tell you what, one of the saddest verses in the Bible for us men is where right there in Genesis 3, where it said that Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that she wasn't supposed to eat, and then gave it to her husband with her, and he ate too. Which means he's right there the whole time this is happening and sitting there like a dumb bump on a log. Not taking any authority over the house, not telling the serpent to get out of his house and to leave his wife alone. Just sitting there dumb while the whole thing was going on because the Bible says that he was with her. And that's just one of those moments where it's like, oh, Lord. Of course, we all think we could do better than he did, but, but that's another point. But that was the moment where the authority, the keys that mankind originally had, because man was the one who was supposed to dominate this place, have dominion, but he turned it over. And now this outlaw devil who got himself kicked out of heaven. He's got it now. Now, what does the Bible say about the devil that gives us some insight into the fact that he had some kind of place of prominence here? Well, first of all, um, and this is not in the verses, but it's a reference you can write down. Hebrews 2.14 says that the devil had the power of death. So that's one thing we see about him. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 identifies the devil clearly as something. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, uh, Whose minds the, the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So he's called the God of this age. The old King James calls him the God of this world, the God of this world system. Ephesians 2 has a name for him. Ephesians 2, 2 says, In which he once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. 
the spirit who now works in the son of disobedience. So, so how did he become the God of this age? How did he get this position? Because the keys were turned over to him. John 12, 31, Jesus talking about him. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Jesus called him the ruler of this world. He used that term several other times, 1430. Uh, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He's nothing in me. And then also in chapter 16, verse 11, he says uh, 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 of judgment. Of course, that's the middle of a statement that, that he's uh, already making there. Uh, because the ruler of this world is judged. So three times there, right there in the, the book of John, um, you, you see uh, Jesus making reference to Satan as being the ruler of this world. Well, how did he get to be that? That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. But you see, God gave the keys to Adam. Adam was supposed to be the one holding the lease. But what happened? Adam turned it over. Legally turned it over. And I'll tell you, what a beautiful story right there to be able to tell of how God got his way back into planet Earth and would not allow himself to be blocked out would not allow himself to, to not be able to have access to the hearts of mankind. Because even right there, when the world was in its worst condition, it said that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And ultimately what happened is that Jesus, <laughs> hey, come on now, Jesus came. And I want to read something for, for you and uh Jesse, this was not planned, but if you can find it, it's good. Uh, this is going to be 1 Corinthians 2. And I want to start reading with verse 6. So I know this is last minute, but uh, I look how quick you are, man. So, so we'll probably read a few more verses after this. But look at this. Talking about the God of this age and the rulers of this world, that kind of lingo that we've seen in reference to Satan. Paul says here, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Yes. Glory be to God. You know who nothing is? Yeah. Do I have to tell you who nothing is? Is the guy who, who uh, uh, thought he was just going to go ahead and dance all the way through. He thought he was going to have a party at all of our expense. But oh, somebody rained on his parade and spoiled his party, glory to God. And this very one who used to be running things is now the one who's coming to nothing, glory to God. And you see that God could not go into the Garden of Eden and take the keys back and say, hey, what are you doing? Because once he gave the keys, 
It was within Adam's authority what he was going to do with the kids. And Adam did what Adam did. And we've been in the situation we've been ever since. But in the same way that Adam did was he did as a representative of the whole human race to mess us all up. Jesus, the last Adam, did what he did as a representative of the whole human race, which means when you put faith in what he did, you get back what we lost because of Adam's transgression. Hallelujah. And that, my friend, is some very good news. So if somebody starts talking about, yeah, God's a, Bringing this evil my way. Maybe he's trying to teach me something. Maybe. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I get a kick out of the folks that say, well, the Lord put this sickness on me for some reason. He must want to teach me something. But, but you know something's wrong right away, and this is how you know. Could they go to the doctor to try to get rid of the thing that God gave them to teach them something? Something wrong with that picture. And we're going to see two weeks from tonight, especially focusing in on what Jesus is like. What Jesus is like. And we're also going to see this, that there's a whole lot that you don't know from reading the Old Testament alone. The Bible is actually called what's called progressive revelation, which means you don't get it all right away. It progresses as it goes. It grows as it goes. And then when you get to the end, then you got all the pieces. But, but, but that's why you cannot interpret the Old Testament correctly without the New Testament. Because you, you don't have all the pieces. You, you don't have the, the full, beautiful description of what the fathers really like in the Old Testament by itself. You've got glimpses, but then you've got things that make you say, huh? Like some of the things we talked about tonight. But then when you get into the, uh, the New Testament, you get the full picture, the complete picture, and you say, ah, oh, now I get it. And I think some people are already getting it tonight, aren't you? Glory to God. Has this blessed you tonight? Glory to God. The word is good. The Lord is good. Praise God. Let's go ahead and pray tonight. Father, we honor you and give you praise and glory. Lord, we're so blessed to be here in your presence. And Lord, to, to get into your word and, and, and just to see the wonders of how great you are and kind you are to us, it's just amazing. And we are so blessed. Father, I pray tonight that everybody in this place, Lord, that this word be solidified in their heart. That they go and that they're going to leave this place knowing the goodness of God, knowing the depths of his love and goodness to them. And, and, uh, and Father, that they'll not just know it theoretically, but they'll experience you personally. If you're here tonight 